This is Daryl Wood, host of Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show on Faith Talk 1500. First, let me say this show is your show. That's why no matter what I discuss or which guests I interview, your input is value. If it's in the news, on TV, or at the movies, whether political, social, economic, or whatever, at some point I'm talking about it on Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show, Monday through Thursday from 4 to 6 p.m. on Faith Talk 1500. Good afternoon and welcome to Word and Praise Radio featuring the sermons from the pulpit of Redeemer Church of Clarkston. I'm Pastor Paul Edwards. Just a little more than two years old, Redeemer Church is the only Reformed Baptist church in Clarkston, Michigan. We meet Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at Sashabal Middle School on Maybe Road between Sashabal Road and Clintonville Road in Clarkston. Our worship services last about 75 minutes. They include public prayer and scripture reading, historic and contemporary hymns, and relevant messages messages from God's Word, just like the ones you're hearing every Sunday right here on Faith Talk 1500. We're committed to the historic Christian faith. You can learn more about our church, including directions and service times, at RedeemerClarkston.com. How do we live out our faith in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity? This was the very question the first century Christians faced, and Peter addressed it with practical answers in his first epistle. So I invite you to get your Bible and join the congregation of Redeemer Church of Clarkston in the first epistle of Peter as we examine how to live life together in a hostile culture. We return this Lord's Day to the first epistle of Peter, chapter 4, and the words to which I should like to direct your attention are to be found in 1 Peter, chapter 4, beginning at verse number 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality to one another without grudging, as every man hath received the gift. Even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter spends this entire letter, and remember it's a letter. If you got a letter, you wouldn't turn four pages in and start reading. You'd begin at the beginning, right? Peter spends this entire letter painting a portrait of this great God to whom he says we must take hold if we are going to survive in this culture. And I simply want to break this down into three parts. Number one, we approach God on the basis of his name, his reputation. I want to approach God because of who he is. I want to approach this God. And his name, his reputation speaks volumes of him and tells me just by his name that this is someone I want to to meet. So Peter gives us seven different names for God in 1 Peter. I want to give them to you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God the Father. What a wonderful image. 
God the Father. He says it again down in verse uh, number 17 of chapter 1. If you call on the Father. The Father. That says two things. The fact that God has a reputation as Father, number one, speaks to His work, His monergistic work, to use the theological term, His work apart from any effort of mine. His work alone, His power alone. It speaks, the fact that He is my Father speaks to His work of begetting me, of birthing me. As a matter of fact, this is exactly where Peter's headed when when he calls him, down in verse number 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now the resurrection plays a central role in all of Peter's letter in terms of how we get our minds right when dealing with unjust suffering. We focus on resurrection. We focus on the resurrection of our Lord and recognize that we were raised with Christ, Ephesians 2, and seated with Christ in heavenly places. His resurrection is our resurrection. We, We share it together. And so when Peter here calls God the Father, he is referring to this deeply theological truth that that could be explored for hours on how God worked through His Spirit, working with the Word to plant the seed of the Word within us, to cause regeneration to take place within our hearts, and to make us His children. So the context of chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 is all about our being begotten again by the resurrection of Christ through the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, it also speaks to his responsibility as a father for those whom he's birthed. God is responsible for me now. Now I say that reverently. But look, we we say to young men all the time, if you're going to birth a baby into the world, you're going to take responsibility. You're going to be the father. You're going to take care of that child. God, when he birthed us into new life, did not abandon us. He's our father, and he cares for us. You hear John say it in 1 John, I think, chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And later in that same chapter, he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. God is purifying us. God is taking responsibility for us because he is our father. I take hold of him, but the greater assurance comes from the fact that he has taken hold of me. If I let go, God's not letting go. God has taken hold of me because I am His Son by right of regeneration. He has birthed me. And I love the way Paul puts it to the Galatians, that God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit of adoption into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. God has a responsibility for us. And so you can approach this God because He is your Father. He's birthed you, and He takes responsibility for you, and you're not offending Him by interrupting Him. The greatest picture from the White House ever released 
is that picture during the Cuban Missile Crisis was taken on October 28, 1962. John John is under the desk of the President of the United States, John Kennedy, as he's dealing with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Let us, therefore, come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy. Which of you, having a son and ask you for bread, will give him a stone? The President's son is entitled to sit at his feet while he deals with all the crises of the world. And I want to tell you something. You're a son of God, and you have every right, with everything else that God has going on, with everything else you think may be distracting him from your cares, you have every right to go right to his throne, right to his feet, and cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. He's your father. Now, we're not going to spend that much time on the rest. The second one, verse 3, he's the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that makes me? That makes me an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. Everything that's true of Christ is now true of me. Now, if you look at me, you know that's not true in terms of where I am now. But thank God that my Father is purifying me. He's working on me. And one day my vile body shall be transformed into His glorious body. I am an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ because Jesus, I am, or the God that I'm approaching is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. Then in chapter 2 in verse 3, the Lord... He's the Lord. He's not only your father, and you're not only related to Jesus, but this God who is your father is your Lord, and he deserves the respect due to someone of his stature and his reputation. He deserves your respect. He's not your best buddy. He's not your best friend. He is your father. But I would never talk to my own earthly father the way some Christians refer to God. I would never do it. He is Lord. And then fourth, chapter 2 and verse 25, He is the shepherd and bishop of our souls. He's the shepherd and bishop of our souls. What does that mean? What does a shepherd do? shepherd cares for the sheep. A bishop oversees and directs. God is the shepherd and bishop of our souls. Why? Because there's a war for your soul. When you think about your mental state, when you think about how often you are overwhelmed with the things of this world and how, how, how maybe sometimes you get melancholy, maybe some go to the extreme of depression, maybe you're not chronically depressed, but maybe some in the room have chronic depression, and I'm not suggesting uh, that, uh, that, that there isn't a medical reason for that. But one of the things that you need to recognize is that the, the, the sphere of operation for Satan is primarily your mind. Primarily your mind. He is the accuser of the brethren. He will tell you true things about yourself that will depress you. He will tell you true things about yourself that will depress you. He is the accuser of the brethren. What you have to remind yourself of is, self of is, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You have an advocate and a mediator and a high priest that you can appeal to, and you need to remind the devil when he rightfully says of you that you're a sinner and he points specifically to the sin, you need to remind him that take it up with my advocate. 
Take it up with the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't stand in my righteousness, nor do I stand in the guilt of my sin. I stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I stand in His righteousness, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness which is of God by faith, by the faith of Jesus Christ. He's the shepherd and bishop of our souls. Why? Peter said it in chapter 2 and verse 12. Dearly beloved, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against what? The soul. What is the soul? The soul is the seed of your emotions. The soul is who you are. You're not your body. You are your soul. Your soul is your personality. And your own lusts are warring against it. And in, in, in 1 Peter 5.8, Satan is warring against your soul and he's using your own lusts as a weapon against you. And so your soul needs to be guarded. This afternoon, go read Psalm 42 and listen to David say, My soul thirsts for you. My soul thirst for you. It longs for you. And then later he says, why art thou cast down, O my soul? The soul is the chief target of the enemy. He is the enemy of your soul. Who do you appeal to? You appeal to the shepherd and the bishop of your soul. Why? Because as a shepherd, look at how the Bible describes the work of this shepherd in, uh, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 and verse number 12, for the eyes, First Peter 3, 12, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. As the shepherd and bishop of your soul, you have a shepherd whose eye is on you all the time. You're never outside of his watch care. Always he's looking to you. Always. And his ear is not deaf that it cannot hear. He hears your cry. Now you may cry for a long time before he responds. But he's not deaf to your cry. He hears your cry. Call upon him. Continue to cry unto him. Why? Because he is the shepherd and bishop of your soul, whose eyes are upon you, whose ears are open to your prayer. Number 5, chapter 3 and verse 15, he's called the Lord God. And we just point this one out because it's there, but Lord God is a mixture of the two. He's Lord, he deserves my respect, and he's God, he's absolutely all-powerful. Chapter 4, verse 19 is the sixth title that Peter gives to us in this portrait. He's called the faithful creator. So not only is he your father by right of regeneration... He's your creator, and he cares about you for that reason. Which, fundamentally, that's the reason why we ought to care about each other outside of the family of faith. The imago Dei, the image of God in everyone. The reason we feed the homeless uh, every other Thursday morning down in Pontiac is because these men and women are in the image of God. They're created in the image of God. And this God is a faithful creator. He's faithful to His Word. He's faithful to His promises. He's faithful to you. And the final title that's given to us in this portrait is in chapter 5 and verse 10. He is the God of all grace. He's the God of all grace. You know why you can approach this God? Because all He has is grace for you. But God, Paul said, who is rich in mercy... 
for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, quickened us together, made us alive together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath seated us together with Christ in heavenly places, so that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding greatness of His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You can approach this God because He's kind to you. He is kind to you. He is more kind to you than you deserve. He's more kind to me than I deserve. And yet His mercies are new every morning. So we approach this God on the basis of His name. He is God the Father. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. He's the shepherd and bishop of our souls. He's the Lord God. He's the faithful creator. And He's the God of all grace. But the second part of all this is His name says something about who He is. All of these names say something about who He is. And Peter then focuses our attention on the qualities which inform the reputation of God. You don't just get a reputation by showing up. Something is happening. You are doing something to deserve the reputation, either good or bad, that you have. You earn your reputation. And so when God has a reputation for being the Father, when He has the reputation for being the Lord, when He has the reputation for being the shepherd and bishop of our souls and a faithful creator and the God of all grace, it's because of His actions. It's because He has done things that make Him worthy of that reputation. Verse number 3 of chapter 1, abundant mercy. Abundant mercy. This God that we're called to take hold of is a God of abundant, not just mercy, but abundant mercy. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain what? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Abundant mercy. Verse 15 of chapter 1, holiness. This is a God of mercy, abundant mercy, but He's also a God of holiness. This is a God who you ought to want to be like. When you're in the room with greatness, you hope that they're modeling a character that you want to have some of in your own life, right? Well, God is absolutely the model of the character that all of us as followers of Jesus Christ ought to want. Holiness. He is holy. And we need R.C. Sproul here to explain what all of that means. But you go back to Isaiah 6. And you get a picture of the holiness of God high and lifted up in His train filling the temple. The earth quaking. Smoke filling the room. And you become aware of your unholiness. Woe is me, for I am undone. But God does something about that. His abundant mercy causes him to send an angel with a tongue to take a coal from off the altar and place it upon your lips and say, now you're clean. Not because of anything you've done, but because of my mercy alone and because of my grace alone. He's holy and we ought to want to live up to that. Verse 17 of chapter 1, he's a God of righteous judgment. And that's also revealed in in chapter 2 and verse 23. But in in verse 17, who are you calling on? You're calling on a father who without respect of persons judges every man according to his works. And in chapter chapter, um, 2 and verse number 23, he commits himself, Jesus commits himself to him that judges righteously. You're approaching a God who doesn't play favorites. 
and isn't going to love you one day and not the next, depending on how you behave and what you do. He's a God who judges righteously. He's the God, in verse number 21 of chapter 1, who has raised Jesus up from the dead and gave him glory. What a reputation God has. God, by his own power, the might of his hand, has raised up Jesus Christ from the dead. We approach a God who has the ability to bring people back from the dead. And so if the culture is so hostile to you that they not only take your livelihood, but they take your life, guess what? God's able to give both back to you. He's the God who raised Jesus from the dead, and you have the privilege of approaching this God. Chapter 2 and verse 3, graciousness. The graciousness of God. The Lord is gracious. You know when you're in the presence of graciousness. Kindness and favor. Somebody who goes out of their way for you. This is the God we serve. We've already looked at chapter 3 and verse 12. His eyes are over the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. Chapter 3 and verse 20. He's long-suffering. This God's earned his reputation by being long-suffering. He's been long-suffering most with me. He got his reputation from being long-suffering with me. I long withstood him to his face, resisted his grace, and yet his mercies to me have been new every morning. Aren't you glad he's long-suffering with you? He tolerates you. He puts up with you. You can approach this God. The devil's going to say to you, don't bother God because you know he's busy and you've tested his patience. No, God says, no, I'm long-suffering. You can't, you can't bring me to the end of my patience. God will never get to his wit's end with you. You can always approach this God. And then in chapter 4, verse 10, chapter 5, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 10, the manifold grace of God. Grace in all of its variety. You woke up this morning, that's grace. You got money in your pocket, that's grace. You're on your way to heaven, that's grace. Manifold grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. It's manifold grace. This day, you ought to just make a, make a game. A game isn't the right word, but you ought to test yourself and see if you can't find ways that God is manifesting His grace to you even this day. Just look for ways that God is manifesting His grace to you in manifold different ways. And then in chapter 5 and verse 7, care. He cares for you. He cares for you. So Peter paints this wonderful, beautiful picture of this God God is in the room. He's in the room with you. You're afraid to approach Him. You don't need to be afraid to approach Him. He's your Father. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the shepherd and bishop of your soul. He's the faithful creator. He's the God of all grace. He has abundant mercy. He has holiness. He's righteous in His judgment. He's long-suffering to you. He has so much power, He was able to raise Jesus from the dead so He can handle any problem you've got. You need to take hold of this God. You need to just move toward this God and take hold of this God. So what is to be our response? Peter doesn't leave us in the dark about that. Three responses. Chapter 1 and verse 17, call on Him. Call on the Father. What are you waiting for? Call on the Father. Again, this word call has the idea of appeal and pleading. 
Secondly, chapter 4 and verse 19. Commit the keeping of your soul to Him. What does that mean? It's a bank deposit. You have $1,000 and you want to keep it safe? I can't recommend any specific bank to you. But if you have $1,000 and you want to keep it safe, maybe what you do is you go put it in a bank. Or if you have a little more money than that and you've got a nice guy that understands mutual funds and how the markets work, maybe you invest some of it, you commit that money to him. Peter here says, commit the keeping of your soul to your faithful creator. So is your soul under attack? Unjust treatment by the world? You feel like the church is on the wrong side of history, that the world is just getting the best of you. You're being made fun of at work because you're a Bible-believing Christian and you believe all of this stuff. Commit the keeping of your soul to Him as unto a faithful Creator. And then finally in chapter 5, verse 7, cast. Call, commit, and cast. Casting all your cares upon Him. There's only one other time in the New Testament where this word casting in the Greek language is used. Jesus getting ready to come into Jerusalem. The Bible says they found a donkey, a colt, a beast of burden, and they cast blankets on the beast. God your Father, the shepherd and bishop of your soul, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, your faithful creator, expects you to cast your burden on him in the same way that a beast of burden bears the burdens for others. I hope this message has been an encouragement and a help to you as you seek to serve Jesus in the routine of your life. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me at our website, RedeemerClarkston.com, and you can also send me a personal confidential email at paul at RedeemerClarkston.com, and I'll respond with some personal words of encouragement. Word and Praise Radio is an extension of the ministry of the church that I pastor, Redeemer Church of Clarkston, Michigan. More information about our church, like our doctrinal statement and our governing documents are available to you at our website at RedeemerClarkston.com.